Well, welcome. Happy Resurrection Sunday. It's so good to be celebrating with all of you. And uh, there's no place that I'd rather be than with all of you right now celebrating here in this place. And maybe this is your first time with us. You're going to find that this place is filled with all sorts of different kinds of people. There are Purdue fans here. Any Purdue fans here? IU fans, some Sycamore fans. Be proud of it now. We even have some Kentucky University fans in this room. You may not want to admit that. Whoa. They sit right here so you know where to throw the eggs. We have some uh, Cardinals fans here, Cubs fans here. We even have some Reds fans. And um, I even met a couple Yankees fans they're here in this place too. It takes all kinds to make the kingdom of God grow, you know? We have people that are associate themselves with the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party. We have people here that just like to party. That is this kind of place. Uh, this is a place that is filled with all sorts of people that make up one common purpose, and that is to exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And this place is filled with all kinds of people that are from different backgrounds that make up a uniqueness that says we want to be and we desire to be the spiritual hospital of our region. You know, we'll admit there are people in this room that are healthy. There are people in this room that have come in broken. And you might be one of those wounded warriors that are here today. And you're not broken on the exterior, but broken on the spirit. Your joy has been robbed, your hope has been lost, your faith has been disappointed, and some of you have a, a, a bit of skepticism, some of you have a great deal of skepticism about places like this. You've been hurt from churches of the past. You've had leaders that have taken the trust and they've pulled the rug out from under you. You know, in this place, you're gonna have all sorts of kinds of people here. You're gonna have people that are sincere and strong in the faith, and you're also gonna meet a few fake people as well. But it takes all kinds. And Christ has called us here all together. We're here because we've aligned ourselves with a common theme and a common purpose to exalt Christ and to be the spiritual hospital of our region. And I'm so thankful that you're here. Hey, you recognize too, right? This is not only Easter, but it's also April Fool's Day. Now, that, that is a, a, a day that has seemed to lost its steam, hasn't it? I think the last time an April Fool's trick was pulled on me is when I was at an elementary school. But at one point, I think this day had all sorts of momentum behind it. As a matter of fact, the BBC back in 1957 pulled a huge April Fool's joke on the nation of England saying that in Switzerland, they had a bumper crop of a spaghetti harvest that came off the spaghetti trees. Now, millions of Great Britons were... were, were Fooled by that, and even the BBC lead director had to go to the encyclopedia to see if spaghetti really did grow on trees. Now, everybody knows it doesn't grow on trees. You'd be a fool to think it grows on trees. We all know it grows on vines, so we all know this stuff. It's probably one of the biggest April Fool's joke pulled, but I think there's one that's even bigger. It happened about 2,000 years ago when the Roman soldiers beaten, flogged, and crucified a a Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus from a little town called Nazareth. Now, what kind of carpenter would stand out to be such an important figure that the Romans would want him dead and the Jewish leaders would want him condemned? Only one that claimed to be the son of God and had a miraculous birth. And so Jesus told and taught all about that. And the religious leaders were upset and they executed him. And they killed him. And you know what? The, the Roman soldiers made doubly sure he was dead by thrusting that spear right into his side all the way up into the heart. And the Roman government, after the body was taken down, made sure that there were guards posted around that tomb because they didn't want anybody coming to steal the body. They didn't want anybody to turn it into a shrine. And they made sure it was, it was sealed and shut that no man could get in and certainly no man could get out. You know what was found out though? The greatest hoax. One man did get out. He rose from the dead, 
And eyewitnesses all around the area and secular historians all claimed that it wasn't a hoax, that it wasn't a fool, that Jesus really did die because they saw him die, and that Jesus really did survive or rise up. They couldn't quite explain it. As a matter of fact, it was unexplainable to so many, but they had, saw, they had seen him die, but now they had seen him alive, and they wrote about it, and they believed that a man did die, and he rose again. And what I think is so interesting about where we're at today is there's about 36% of Americans that say that never happened. Now, I can understand that because there are probably non-believers mixed in with that group, but I'm even more baffled to understand that there are 25% of Christians that say it didn't happen either. And if it didn't happen, then we've robbed ourselves of the power that's associated with us. But not only that, we're kind of spitting on the historians of the day. And we're saying we know better now than, we, than you knew in the first century when you had eyewitness accounts. We're saying we know better than the Roman government who tried to seal it off and stop Christianity. You remember it was the Roman government that tried to press Christianity out. You probably know of the emperor named Nero, don't you? You probably know him for two things. He burnt down Rome through a scheme and blamed it on the Christians. And number two, while it was burning, he played the violin and did nothing about it. And as that city caught fire and the flames spread, Christianity even grew stronger, even though it became persecuted because it was blamed on the Christians. And even though it was blamed on the Christians, you couldn't stop those eyewitness accounts. You couldn't stop people from saying, you know, it was 30 years ago that we saw a guy die and rise from the dead. He claimed to be the son of God and we believe it. And those eyewitness accounts kept growing and growing and you could not stop the spread of Christianity, even through the threat of death or the threat of persecution. Those eyewitnesses wrote about it. And you're saying, yeah, I know, they wrote about it in the Bible. No, no. There was no Bible 30 years after Jesus' death. They had no source of scripture in those days, just the Old Testament, and it had nothing to do with Jesus. And so men and women pinned their own historical accounts and said, this is what I saw, and this is what I want you to know. You're saying, yeah, well, you know, that's just word of mouth. Let's just say that I saw the Queen of England at the white steamer yesterday. You would be quick to say, no, that's a lie, Matt. You did not see that. But what if you started hearing reports? that uh, the, the Queen of England was actually at the steamer. And what if you heard there were news reporters there, and while you didn't see the video for yourself, you heard through the news reporters that she really did go have a slider at the steamer. Now, you'd probably rethink about what I said, and your conclusion would be, you know what? Maybe what Matt saw and who he saw was probably correct. You see, if you think that uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was some kind of elaborate hoax by his followers, you are discrediting the historians, both secular and believers. You're discrediting, discrediting the Roman government itself, who thought they were such a big threat, and the eyewitness reports were so true that they had to stamp it out so that their own religion system could survive. But you know the Romans couldn't, and 300 years later, they threw out all their gods, and they accepted the one true God. And I, I want you to throw out everything else today. And I want you to accept the one true God. And I tell you those historical facts so that you can no longer nonchalantly just dismiss what took place over 2,000 years ago on this day. That you'll look into these historical facts and you'll recognize there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be God who died on a Roman cross and then unexplainably rose again to tell about it. And that's what Easter's about. A power that says, I've defeated something and I can come out through it and I've come out better and I've come out victorious. 
You know, in the book of Luke, chapter 24, one of those eyewitness accounts was written down, and we get to read about it. And one, one thing I want you to, to see as Luke, who is a medical doctor, as he wrote, I want you to notice the skepticism that Luke, who followed after Jesus, had as he wrote about the resurrection. You see, those 11 disciples, excluding Judas, those 11, they didn't really think that Jesus rose from the dead immediately. It took them some convincing proof as well. Luke chapter 24, start in verse one with me. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. You know why they were taking spices? They were taking spices to lay in front of the tomb entrance so that it would mask the smell of death. Do you know how Luke begins his resurrection Sunday? By saying that the women expected to go visit a corpse. They were skeptical about what Jesus had to say. And then in verse 2 it says, They found that the stone had been rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. Another eyewitness account to that story leads us to believe that the women thought that the, the religious leaders had taken the body of Jesus so that the tomb would not become a shrine for followers of Jesus. Verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Isn't that a great line? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. You know what I think is interesting about the way the gospel writers tell their story is, if you were to write a story about yourself, you're gonna put yourself in the best light. But they don't. They put themselves in the shadow of doubt. Look at verse nine. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the others. Verse 11, skip one verse and go to verse 11. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. So Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away. How did he go away? Wondering to himself what had happened. Now, have you noticed all the doubt and skepticism that's found within the eyewitness account? Because dead men don't come back to life. It is impossible. But it is one of those miraculous events that has changed all of human history. You see, when Jesus was seen by those in the community, eating with people after his resurrection and teaching hundreds of them at a time, those eyewitnesses said, this is real. This is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead and it changed human history. You know, Jesus didn't write any literature. He never wrote a book. Yet there are more books filled in more libraries about Jesus than any other person in history. Jesus was never an artist. He never was a sculptor. But yet there is more art and sculptures that have the focal point of Jesus than anyone or anything in all of history. Jesus was never a musician and never penned a single sheet of music. But there is more composition about Jesus in lyric and in song than in anyone or anything in history. Jesus was never an architect, nor did he come with building plans. But there are more buildings in, built in his honor and in his name than any other person or any other thing in all of history. Are you getting what I'm getting at? Are you getting what I'm getting at? It started with 11 and it's grown to 2.3 billion people today. One out of three people say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And they trust those 
historical accounts. They look at the history of Jesus. They trust the Roman government who tried to squash out all of that religious movement and they point to Jesus and he says, he really did rise from the dead. It changed everything in this world. But here's my biggest question for you. Has it changed you? It's changed everything in this world, but has it changed you? You see, the power that Jesus demonstrated and rose from the dead with is available to you, and it brings an everlasting change. And I just want to share with you five things that are available to you when you start trusting in the resurrected Savior of Jesus Christ. Five things that bring power to your life. Here's the first one. Jesus' resurrection gives me the power to live free and to live forgiven. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 tells us, In Christ we are set free by the blood of his death. And so we have forgiveness of sins. How rich is God's grace? You see, we're set free from the bondage of sin. That doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. But what it means is we are not held to paying the penalty or paying the price for the sins that we've committed. Did you know that every sin that we commit has a penalty? has a price to be paid. I'm not just talking about the earthly consequences. I'm talking about the spiritual implications. Jesus says if that debt's not paid, then we're bound to pay it in an eternal dangerous place called hell. That's a place that is simply absent of God's love. We know nothing of that place. And we know nothing what it's like to be in absence of God's love. You may remember one of the stains of Jesus on the cross before he died was, it is finished. Do you remember that? That's a a term that was associated in the day with a transaction for good or services that you would have heard in the marketplace. It simply meant paid in full. And when Jesus hollered out, it is finished, he was saying, it is paid in full. And you're asking, what was paid in full? My sin debt, your sin debt. It was paid in full and we are completely forgiven for the things we've done in the past and the present and even the things we'll do in the future. Jesus paid the price for our sins. And here's what I found. There are two groups of people. There are those that have yet to accept it and receive the forgiveness, and there are others that have accepted it, but they're still trying to pay off what Jesus has already paid for them. Let me speak to both groups for a second. First to the group that says, I have yet to accept God's forgiveness. Hey, let's just say for a moment, I got real generous, and I became someone that I'm not, and I paid for your meal. And I you didn't know I did it. I just did it out of the blue. No big deal. And I paid for the tip. I paid for everything of it. And your server comes to you and you says, hey, your meal has been paid for. Now, I think there would be a, an understanding, a reasonableness for you to say, you know, uh, did, did it get paid in full? Was the tip even paid? There'd be a little bit of skepticism, I'd understand. You'd kind of want to see what the server had to say about that. You might even want to find out who did that, who paid for you. I can understand a part of that. But you know what I wouldn't be able to understand? If you denied what the server had said to you, and you decided to, to pay anyway, or if you decided to, to leave a, a greater tip than the tip that was already left for that server, and you just said, you know what, I, I don't believe it. I, I don't believe it's been paid in full. I didn't see the person make the transaction. I don't know the person that made the transaction, and since I didn't see it for myself, I refuse to believe it. Now, you know what you'd do? You'd miss out on a gift that I wanted to give you. You'd miss out on something great that I wanted to hand your way. And God is offering you a gift, and that gift is the power of forgiveness and the power to live in freedom. Look what Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says. It tells us, the payment for sin is death, but God gives us the free gift of life forever in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
How different would your world be if you didn't live with guilt, if you didn't live with shame, if you didn't live in the fear of maybe that God is oppressing you? You see, God has removed your sins far from you. He's removed the debt of your sin because he paid it on the cross. It is finished. It's paid in full. And you don't have to live your life with regret or shame or with the fear of being persecuted for your sins in an internal sense. Jesus rose from the dead. He's forgiven your life. He's given you the ability and the power to live free and to live forgiven. Now, to the group that says, I've believed that and I accept God's forgiveness, but I'm still trying to pay the tip. Let me say to you, the Christian life in, and salvation is not about what you do. You need to stop thinking it's about what you do. You need to stop thinking that salvation is about what you do and who you've become. Salvation is about what Jesus has done for us. You see, religion is not a relationship. Religion teaches us and spells salvation D-O, do. All the things you can do, all the things and the ways that you can live up to God's standards or the good things, hopefully they will outweigh the bad things. But you know how Jesus Christ spells salvation? He spells it D-O-N-E, done. There's nothing that you can do. It's already been done on the cross. You just need to accept the gift. The bill has been paid. You just need to have the knowledge of that and walk in the truth of it. So let me say to both groups, it's time to start trusting Jesus. It's time to start trusting Jesus that there's nothing more that you can do for salvation. Jesus has done it alone. It's time now to trust in Jesus Christ and walk in the power that he has given to us through that resurrection, the power to live free and the power to live forgiven. Here's the second advantage of Christ's resurrection power and what it can bring to our life. And that is the power of God at work within us. Ephesians chapter one, verse 19 and 20 says it like this. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. You know, that's been my prayer for you this week is that you will understand the incredible power that God brings to you. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You know, that power that is given to you is the power for you to believe and to step into faith and to follow Jesus. That's God's spirit at, life, at work in your life. And you don't have to live on your own power anymore because your willpower is not doing enough for you. Your willpower is not propelling you to the place where you need to go or want to go. Anybody in this room feel stressed out? Anybody in this room feel tired, exhausted, worn out? Yeah, don't everybody raise your hand at once, right? Too tired to even raise it. Let me tell you something. There is no amount of sleep that will help if your soul is the thing that is tired. And this room is filled with people that have good intentions in life but have pursued their interests in other places and have used their power for other things or have used their will to accomplish things that they were un could not possibly accomplish on their own. You know, God wants to empower your life. God wants to give you power beyond yourself. The resurrection power of Jesus is available for you. This room is filled with spouses that looked at their marriage and said, you know what, we need to get back to Jesus. And when they did, you know what they discovered? Their marriage, which was on the rocks and was bound for divorce, was able to be shored up and it's progressively getting better by the day because they, they decided to get back to Jesus and tap into his power. There are parents in this room that could testify about how it was when they finally gave their life over to Jesus, did they find patience and grace and allow their children to be grown in the love of God rather than in their own anger. 
You see, God was growing things in them that they couldn't grow in themselves, and he was doing it through, their power, through, the, through his power. You see, the power of God that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is here today, and it's in this place, and can be received when you receive Jesus. It's the power that keeps you going when you think all hope is lost. It's the power that says, I can have a fresh start, and it can happen today. It's the power that says, I can go to my job, and even though I hate it, I can find some blessings within it. The power to change your attitude. It's the power to say, I can break free from any addiction this world has thrown onto me, or any addiction I've chained myself to. It's the power to say, I admit my weakness, and God, I recognize that my weakness is nothing more but a conduit for your strength and for your power to work within me. It's the power that bridles anger. It's the power that gives us the ability to forgive. It's the power that has us stand morally strong when others cower in fear. Friends, there is a reason why Christianity spread so quickly in the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection. It was because of the power of God at work in the life of the believers. You see, the scriptures teach us in 2 Timothy, for the spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power of love and self-discipline. Here's the third advantage that I want you to see through the resurrection power of Jesus. That's the power to confidently love others, to confidently love others. You know, I'm loved by God, and I know that because of what Christ has done on the cross and because his resurrection. And I now can experience that sacrificial love, and I can share that sacrificial love with other people. I can, I can love like Jesus in a very similar way. It's not a love that is based on what people have done for me or what based, uh, people have done to me. It's a love that's based on what God has done for me and a love that God has done through me. You know, one of the difficulties is staying sensitive to the needs of our world, staying sensitive to the needs and the hurts of our world. And when Jesus Christ is in the believer's life, your eyes open so that you can see those needs, your hands open so you can help meet those needs, and your heart is open so that you can be sympathetic and empathetic to those needs. God gives his followers the confidence to have open eyes, open hands, and open hearts. You know, Jesus taught us a commandment. Do you remember what the commandment was about love? He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. But any believer knows that's not really a commandment when you have Christ in your life. You are now compelled to love others who are different than you. And I look at this room and I see all the differences represented in here, not just the sports teams that we like or dislike, not just the different places where we're from, but I recognize that there are people scattered in this room that are just different. And if you want to know what a healthy church looks like, you just look to see if people in that church are accepted even though they're different. Because a healthy church will accept people even in their differences, but an unhealthy church will demand that you conform to their pattern, and they'll put you in a religious system. We have all sorts of different skin colors in this room, and we recognize that Jesus didn't die for skin. He died for the soul. We have different economic levels in this room, and we recognize Jesus didn't die for a certain social class. He died for the sinning class. We recognize that. And love, in spite of our differences, is the authentic stamp of a Christian. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies. There is only one way you can get away with that, by tapping into the Spirit of God and getting into his power to love your enemies. You see, Christians have the advantage. Open eyes, open hands, open heart. So many in this world have decided, what are you going to do for me if I do this for you? But when you receive Jesus, you have the power now to confidently love others. That means you can turn a stranger into a friend. It means you can have the power to look after other people's needs rather than your own. It means now you have the power to confidently love others and lower yourself so that others might rise above. It's God's power at work in your life that gives you the confidence to love others that are different than you.
Let me give you another advantage of the resurrection power of Jesus. That's the power to live life with meaning and purpose. Yeah, I'm surprised about how many people say, I just don't have purpose in my life. I just don't have meaning in my life. You know, absolutely nothing in this world is going to give you purpose or meaning outside of Jesus Christ. You can go and try to find a new relationship, won't give you new purpose. You can go try to find a new career, won't give you new meaning. You can go and try to find all the money and get it into your bank account all you want, won't bring you greater fulfillment. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Most of you, well, it just seems like have no idea what you're living for. And that's a sad state of affairs because I think there is a percentage in here, a high percentage that really believes that they were born just to pay bills and then to die. That's no place to live. Craig Rochelle in his book called It tells a story about a bunch of greyhound dogs that were about ready to run a race and right before the bell rang and the doors open, that little mechanical bunny shoots out. That bunny's there because those dogs have all been trained to change that bunny as fast as they can and that rabbit comes sprinting out and the doors are open and as the greyhounds just took their path and sprinted on forward, that bunny malfunctioned and exploded and wires and fur just went everywhere. Well, the dogs didn't know what to do anymore. They've been trained to chase the, chase, to chase the rabbit. And so a group of them just stopped and they got tired and they just panted and just stared around. And one other dog ran out and got off track and hit the fence and broke some bones. Uh, a few of the other dogs just kind of got together and they just began to howl and bark at the crowd and look up. Those dogs had no more purpose because they had nothing more to chase any longer. And you know, when we don't have any real meaning in our life, we don't have anything to chase after. I mean, there's some of us that just give up and we're tired and we're weary. A few of us kind of make our own path only to find that our own path leads us to a state of brokenness. And some of us just stare around and we talk about the pains and the moans and all we do is holler and bark about how bad life is for us. But no one ends up finishing the race. But you know, God has formed you uniquely. God's formed you uniquely to have purpose and to have meaning and fulfillment. Uh, Rick Warren, who some of you are associated with through the Purpose Driven Life, has says this in his book, without God, life has no purpose. And without purpose, life has no meaning. And without meaning, life has no significance or hope. You can only find your significance and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, Bertrand Russell gives us the opposite side of that. He was an atheist. He said, unless you assume the existence of God, the question of life's meaning and purpose is irrelevant. Bertrand Russell says, if you don't believe in God, then you just must believe in chance and that we are just complex pond scum. But if you believe in God, there must be meaning. And if you believe in God, there must be fulfillment. You see, there's something better out there for you than just paying your bills and dying. The Bible tells us it's in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians says. In Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. And long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs uh, on us for glorious living. And part of the overall purpose, he is working out in everything and everyone. It goes on to say that you, you can't have meaning without God. And then it moves into this statement, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he's planned for us long ago. Friends, God has purpose for your life and you find it only with him. God's purpose is that you're saved, that you're restored, that you're redeemed, and that you're fulfilled. Saved through Jesus Christ. Restored so that you don't have to live in the shame and sin of yesterday. Redeemed so that you can walk now a fresh start with God. And fulfilled, you now know you're living life's mission as God intended it. And here's the final advantage of the resurrected Savior that he brings to us, the power of fearlessly facing death. You know, the number one fear is the fear of death. Many see it as the end. 
but Christians see it as just the beginning. You see, Jesus' disciples were fearful of death at one time. And Jesus said, you follow me, and I'll show you the way to eternal life. But just follow me. And they followed him. And you know where they followed him to? A cross outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified and killed. Then they followed him to a tomb that was dark. But three days later, Jesus rose again, and he showed him the nail prints that were still there in his hands. And he said, I am the way to eternal life. Now you can follow me. He has been there. He has been through it. And you know what they did after that? You can read about the disciples and their history. They fearlessly followed Jesus until their death, and they fearlessly faced death themselves. And when you accept Christ Jesus and you receive the resurrected power that's associated with him, you too can fearlessly face death and realize Christ has already overcome it. There is nothing to fear where our Savior has already tread upon. So how do you follow Jesus? How do you get to the place where you no longer fear death? I think it's as simple as A, B, C, and D. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who has separated from God. That your sin has separated you. You see, the scriptures say, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. and So stop comparing yourself to your neighbor or your coworker. And start comparing yourself to Jesus. And how do you stack up there? Well, we all have fallen short. And so we have to admit we need forgiveness. We need God. We need a Savior because we have sin. The second part is to believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is a personal Savior to you. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus at night in John chapter 3, verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes, now belief is not just this idea that I believe, the demons believe and it makes them scared. Belief puts into something into motion, something into practice and action. We call that faith. It's the belief that God has already done it all and accepting it as a gift of grace. Nothing you've done, but what Christ has done for you. And third, you need to confess. This is not the idea of confessing your sins. This is the idea of confessing that Jesus is Savior and Lord of your life and doing that very publicly. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, Jesus died a very public death on a very uh, day that was absolutely the busiest of the year outside the thoroughfares and highways and byways of Jerusalem. Millions of people saw Jesus executed and die in humiliation. And Jesus says, would you stand unashamedly for me and confess that belief in Christ publicly? Some people call it the good confession of faith. This is not much different than when you stood up in front of a crowd of witnesses and friends and family that love you and you declared some vows to your spouse. And even though you were timid and even though it was a moment of fright for you, you wanted everyone to know your expressed love for your soon-to-be bride or soon-to-be husband or soon-to-be wife. And Jesus said, you know, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Jesus says, would you just go public with that belief that you have in your heart and start confessing to people that I am your Lord? And the last part is to demonstrate this. We call it faith. We'll call it demonstrate just to stay in line with ABCs and Ds. But that means that I have an allegiance to Christ. I'm gonna repent of my sins and that very first act of faith, that stepping out of saying, I'll be baptized into Christ, sharing his death, burial, and resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what repentance means? 
It means to stop doing what you were doing and to start following something completely different. It's a military term that means an about face. Go the other way. Change directions. Stop following the crowd. Start following Jesus Christ. And then he says, be baptized. I heard this story about Brother Johnson. I was on a cruise a few weeks ago with a, a group of black preachers, and they told me about some of the black preachers. I was surprised on how many preachers have done amazing things, but I'd never heard of it because of the racism barrier that has existed within the, the church for too long. I was introduced to Brother Johnson, and Brother Johnson had this belief that when you were baptized, you should really experience death as close to you as you possibly could. And so when he baptized you, he didn't do what we do around here and say, you're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I baptize you in the name of Jesus, and we lower him in the water. No, he'd lower him in the water and say, I'm baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he'd go on and he'd keep on talking. And by this time, everybody's on the edge of the seat wondering, is that guy going to make it out alive or is he going to drown in that water? And then Brother Johnson would pull him up by the water and say, arise and walk in newness of life. And the one being baptized, he'd gasp for air. <gasps> and everyone realized he's back from the dead. <laughs> now, we don't do that here at this church. We don't do that. But baptism is a symbol of death to our old life and being resurrected like Christ to a new life that we have the power of Christ in us from death to life. And you can fearlessly face death when Jesus Christ's power is within you. I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says. For the message of the cross is what? Is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Look, I'd love to say more about this. But here's the challenge to all of you. Come back next week. Because I have so much more to say. This was part one of part two. Because there is so much more associated with the power of God when you receive Jesus. There's the power that he can use to transform your past and do something amazing with it. There's the power that he has to use your personality, even though it has corks and hangups. God says, I want to use your personality. And there's the power to use your problems. You say, I don't know why I'm going through it. And you're asking why. God says, would you start asking what? Let's learn something together. But as we move forward in this service, we're moving to a place of communion. And if you've been asked to help out with communion, would you just go ahead and dismiss now? Just make your way back there. A communion is a time that we experience every single Sunday. It's a time where we meet together for the sharing of the bread that's being passed and the juice that's being presented. And it's just like a total meager meal. It, there's not much to it. It's unleavened bread. It hasn't risen. There's no yeast found within it. That was customary towards the Passover feast when this was first instituted by Jesus. Uh, the juice isn't wine. Uh, it, it's grape juice, but it's fruit of the vine like Jesus had instituted and why we take that bread, that little piece of bread, it's not for the nourishment of our, of our physical nature. It's for the nourishment of our soul. And we're reminded that Jesus Christ did come in an earthly sense, in a bodily form, and did give his life and rose again in bodily form. And we take that juice to remember that great sacrifice, that it was costly, that it, it, it meant a sacrifice, that blood was shed. Jesus had told us, the scriptures tell us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness I don't know why God instituted it that way, but he said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, was, was put on the cross. He was put on the cross for you and for me so that our sin debt could be paid. And now is just a time to reflect on that. And as you reflect, and if you haven't accepted that, would you start reflecting on 
all Christ and all God has done for you, what this day means and can mean for you, a transition, a change, a transformed life, to stop following the crowd and start following the cross, to be filled with his power, resurrection power.